If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So confidants, welcome back. This is episode nine of LA Not So Confidential, and I'm Dr. Shiloh here with Dr. Scott. But wait a second, are, are they're not so confidants, or are they not, LA not so's? We didn't have this discussion. <laughs> that sounds Shiloh. like LA Nazis. Oh, I don't like yeah. that. <laughs> okay, well, I guess not we cleared so that one up. Not so confidants, it is. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. Sure, I just thought I'd open a little different. So let's say what day it is. It is February twenty second, and we're right in the middle of a major. Major event. Yeah, we don't normally kind of go with what's in the media in the moment. Right, because we want to do a lot of historical, right. you know, background and what, what forensics do. Yeah, But I think this, this is, is a new. different case, yeah. For sure. I thought it was important to do just because of the huge reaction right. that's been going on in, in the community more so than just media kind of taking it and running with it. But you've had the opportunity to comment on this case a little bit in some different arenas. So that's right. also kind of sparked us to say, well... We've got this material. And it's an important it's – it's really a, a, an important juxtaposition of, you know, mental health, law, motivation. I mean, it's right up our alley. Yeah. And in case you don't know what we're talking about, we haven't even mentioned it yet, but you probably have read the title of today's episode. This is about the Jesse Smollett incident in Chicago. Yeah, so we're we're going to dive into all of those things because what I keep hearing over and over again from people is how could someone do this? So, right. I mean, what a perfect transition for us. Yeah, but and the fact is, it happens a lot. And right, right. it doesn't, it happens to, it, it, or it is perpetrated. And let's just say this even though Mr. Smollett has been arrested and released on bail, he is innocent until proven otherwise. We are not, as laymen outside that particular case, privy to all of the information. So, we're not talking about. Mr. Smollett individually. We don't know him, but we are going to try and explore the motivations behind somebody that engages in this kind of behavior. And luckily, we have a lot of examples historically from that have been in the news recently and in the last several decades that we're going to touch on that will give us more, not motivation, but more of a springboard to put some conjecture upon, I would say. Right, right. Because this does happen. It happens to um, all different types of folks and for all different reasons. So So many different reasons. Right. So should we talk about motivation? Yeah, let's talk about motivations. (laughs) So motivation for anything, I guess, with any human behavior, which is what we study. And I tell clients, I tell people this all the time. 
every single thing that you do is for a reason. It's meeting some need. So sometimes I use like if I tuck my hair behind my ear, I'm doing it because it's driving me crazy. It's in my way. I need to get it. You know, all human behavior is pretty much you can dwindle down to the simplest idea that you're trying to get a need met. And in this case with people who fake their own assaults, which also kind of feels like it touches on some weird areas like Munchausen's and faking illnesses. And then there's people that fake their deaths, right? There's all, right, right. there's kind of a spectrum of horrific things that people fake. And when you talk about needs, we also, for those of you that are, you know, our wonderful listeners that are coming from really the true crime aspect and not so much the psychological angle, you know, we are taught a number of theories as we get our education about what drives exist in human beings. Well, not only in human beings, in any living sentient mm-hmm. organism, we can talk about the four or the, the four F's, the uh, fight, flight, feed, feed, or fornicate. Right. So it's four. Yeah. So if you build on those, upon that uh, supposition that, that we are driven by the four F's, then you can move into – there was another research psychologist, Maslow, who talked about the hierarchy of needs. And on the base level of hierarchy of needs is do you have shelter? Mm-hmm. More than anything else, you have to have shelter. And then there's food. Mm-hmm. And then there is – it goes up in a pyramid that, that slowly gets to self-realization and self-actualization. And I think that's kind of where we are or where – we're going to be talking today about people that think that they're going for – actualization and meaning and validation in their life and they think it's a need when they're it's actually something that's way more primitive. right it's some other layered li- a little like, bit lower like kind of lizard brain yeah right like yeah. old school lizard brain right right so in these cases where people are faking assaults they're trying to get some need met in really just outlandish illegal ways sometimes as in the case that we're seeing unfold. So I'm, I'm just going to run through kind of a, a list of major motivations. One being attention, and I think the other major one is some sort of benefit other than attention, if that makes sense. I just want to kind of split gain, those. Yeah. Right? It's what we yeah. call secondary gain. Right, right. So we're going to talk about people who need that attention and need to do it in sort of outlandish ways. This could be attention... Even negative attention, I you know, it doesn't have to be positive regard or, <laughs> you no, know, the ways in which we kind of think of attention is is nice and flowery and positive. I, I'm going to say this completely wrong. I, 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 I'm not going to get the quote right. I think it might have been Dorothy Parker and someone was saying about, oh, they're all talking about you. And I think her response was. I'm only worried when they stop talking about me. There you go. Right now, now, and see, in this particular case, particularly with an actor, a person who is in the public eye, right. who, and in this world of crazy ass social media where a lot of casting decisions are now driven upon how many Instagram followers you have, mm-hmm. which is just ridiculous to me. Sure. Think about that. Negative press is good press. Right. And, you know, you're fooling yourself if you don't think that there's a studio system and publicity machine behind everything you see on Star Magazine or on The Inquirer or on TMZ or right. entertainment. What's the one with, that Ryan Seacrest does or whatever? I don't know. Some, you know, one of the, new, the <laughs> entertainment right. magazines. Entertainment in the, yeah. Like there's a whole machine behind that. 
spinning spinning fantasy, which is what Hollywood is all about, yeah. right? Yeah, just even if it's a really benign story, throw something out there. Right. I don't I, know. This may cross the line into some publicity. Any publicity is good publicity. I'm well, not sure about I, I wonder, you know, it, immediately we go to a place of wondering if it is going to impact someone's career in a situation like this. You know, we're going to talk about some examples a little bit later on of where you would think it would be ruining of someone's career and they bounce back. Right. And we don't even remember, oh, yeah, you did that thing 20 years ago. They low, yeah, lay low for a little while and then they're back. So benefit, talk about benefit, secondary gain. This can, in diving into the research last night, this can really run the gamut. You know, this isn't necessarily just maybe gaining sympathy from others or being treated nicely or being the center of attention, but the secondary gain can be an alibi. And I'll, I'll give you an example later, but just you were supposed to be somewhere else and you weren't, so you made up that this terrible thing happened to you. And I don't, yeah, I don't mean an alibi to get out of a crime. I mean to not maybe get in trouble. And, you know, I saw this... It's awful to talk about when people fake sexual assaults because there's so many ramifications there. But when I was a police officer, three out of the four that I responded to and took reports for ended up being not true. And usually the the complainant, the victim, comes forward relatively quickly and re- retracts their story. Um, but, you know, it's they got caught having sex by their parents or their actual boyfriend with someone else and then made up that they were raped. So yeah, this sort of alibi piece is is really interesting that some people think, well, it's better than me taking responsibility right. or and, whatever it is that I did And wrong. what complicates that even further is that going deeper into a, a particular area of sexual assault is that sometimes people will recant their stories even though the event actually happened. It's not in, very common, but in the cases you're talking about, is like it's complex. Yeah, it's not it's, it is. concrete, black and white, easy to figure out. Right. When I he- have been hearing about the Jesse Smollett case and thinking about my own experiences in handling those cases, at the beginning, even if you have that like weird inkling in the back of your head, you have to treat everyone like they're a legit Absolutely. victim. Absolutely. That's who, your job. Who are you to make that determination based right. on some gut feeling? Now, it may turn out to be right, but God forbid you write this person off and they are, actually are a victim. So I, I think that is one of the angles that a lot of people in the community were coming from to support him as well as identifying with him and – just, you know, wanting to believe him. Right. Because people connect with celebrity, too, and want to believe. Other people falsify attacks because there may be some actual, specifically in hate crimes, there may be some actual harassment or things happening, but law enforcement is not taking him seriously enough. And I know this has been a theory thrown out there that the letter sent to him was real and people didn't take it seriously That's, enough. I, yeah, I was not familiar with that theory until yeah. last night. And it, that puts a different spin on it if, it if that is true. Totally, totally. So there are people that are genuinely suffering, but then they up the ante on their own to then get the attention and legal intervention that it deserves in their mind. So what you're, what you're saying, to boil it down further, if I hear you correctly, is that 
in an example like this with a person who's in a, a marginalized position, so whether it is a person of the LGBT community, LGBTQ community, excuse me, a person of color, a woman, mm-hmm. right? These are marginalized or sections of our population. And if someone feels like we're getting victimized out here and no one's paying attention to us, that, then someone might in, might take it to another level, which then reflects on, without going to a place of diagnosis at this point, that's a little impulsive, oh, right? That's a, that's a little indicator of really not playing the tape forward, as they say in the recovery model of what are the consequences of me right. engaging in this falsehood, this this fantasy I'm going to present well, to sure. law enforcement. That's what I think all the time. How, how do they possibly think this was going to play out exactly as they have it in their mind? Well, my theory is, is that going back to what you were starting with is they're going back to a very primitive place. They're going mm-hmm. back to a very pre-adolescent, almost toddler-like emotional functioning where, you know, you're a parent. Yeah. You know, how many times did your kid get caught with the ki- the hand in the candy jar. Right, right. No, no, you know, right. like just denial, every just blanket denial, denial, just denial. I think I did that more than my kid does. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I did. I still do it when I can get away with it. <laughs> I just want to touch on one last one that there is. Sometimes the motivation is monetary. Sometimes it is insurance benefits. It, in 2010 in Tennessee, there was a lesbian couple that accused a neighbor of setting their house on fire and spray painting queers on their garage and investigation found out that they actually had done it themselves and it was for insurance purposes so they kind of had this hate crime spin on it but yeah let's just talk a little bit more i mean before we talk about disorders just non-pathologically if someone doesn't have a disorder psychological disorder that we could go oh there's that personality disorder that person has this is why they're doing it or or we have the not we have the non-official diagnosis Yes. Which is fecal cranial inversion syndrome and fecal cranial insertion. <laughs> so I'm not saying it. Fecal cranial inversion syndrome, which is basically shithead right. or dumbass. Right. So, you know, just someone that's not, we're not putting a diagnosis of pathology on them. It's just someone that on a lighter level feels entitled or, or whatever. We're going to, let's explore it. <laughs> Can we right? put that on a t-shirt? Yes. <laughs> you got to spell it out. Right Hashtag. Fecal oh cradle inversion syndrome. <laughs> You're going to have someone who's doing this out of desperation. So that's not a great place to be, right? They're probably emotionally dysregulated. They're upset. They feel slighted. All kinds of things going on. Is that – go ahead. Well, no, you finish, and then I'm going I'm to tell a story. Okay. So if, if, if you guys picture that person in your head, they're really upset – Coming up with these crazy plans. I mean, is that a good place to be when you're trying to make decisions and trying to make plans? And now this person is thinking out a solution to their problem. Okay, so immediately what you're taking me to that's really not really pathological, but the idea of anger management, of like sitting with difficult emotions. I mean, that's, I've talked about this several times on the podcast about my work in private practice where. You're teaching people skills of sitting with the discomfort of emotions that are roiling inside you, whether it's grief, whether it's anger, whether it's sorrow, rather than going and impulsively self-medicating with sex or video games or over-exercise or 
Yeah, any of those things. Yeah, so there's the spec. If we look at it as a spectrum, on one end, it's acting out inappropriately that way, or complete avoidance of right. whatever it is, and we're trying to get them to go to the middle. Right. Tolerate it. Tolerate it so that you can, you yourself can step back internally, acknowledge what you're feeling, yeah, and then deal with it. I mean, I, I remember. I have people come into my office, and I'll pull out a, a PDF, a color PDF of a feeling wheel mm-hmm. that has about probably 150 different emotions. And it's overwhelming. Usually for men, it's overwhelming where they're like, wait, what? Yeah, there's more than mad, sad, glad, bad. Right. You know, there's a whole spectrum. And the more you sit with that stuff, you're engaging now in an intellectual process of looking at your emotions, which is going to calm down your physiology, slow down the the adrenaline, slow down that impulsive, like, lizard brain that just wants to lash out. Yeah. Give right? a thought to what am I feeling? Consequences. People don't yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what am I feeling? That. What do I want to do? You know, those shower conversations that we always want to win. Oh, I should have said this. Or, oh, I should have punched them in the throat. That would have saved my knuckles. You know? <laughs> right, right. So what you have is, you know, good people, but they're emotionally hijacked. They don't have good coping skills for dealing with that. And now they have these very powerful emotions like I need to get back or revenge or I'm entitled to whatever. And boom, comes back to the impulsivity that you were talking about before. Right. So what I, the only thing I would add to that is that not necessarily good people. Let's just take away whether they're good people, bad people. They're just people, you know, because even – look, you and I have both worked intensely with people who have done horrific things. And – I don't think that we're outliers in our field, and it is certainly a challenging thing to do, but we have to try and and look at each one of those clients and individuals that we interact with with compassion. Sure. They're still a human. Even a sociopath is still a human being, even though they're missing some of the components that allow them to behave in a a world that, you know, adheres to social norms. So whether... The person who engages in this is, is this a good person in a stressed out situation? Is this a person who is impulsive, but where's the impulsivity come? Is, is this the norm in the family? Right. Maybe. Possibly. It's, you know, I mean, I will say entertainment's pretty cutthroat sure. at times. Sure. Yeah. There's, there's a whole background that we know nothing about. Nothing about. And that's. I think what irks us a little bit when we hear talking heads and people in the media jump into conclusions is that you and I are thinking, gosh, what has this guy experienced where he thought this was okay to do? Or what trauma is contributing to the way he's making decisions? You know, just kind of what came beforehand that led to this when so many people just want to look at what is he doing now and judge on that? Just a very black and white way to think, which is the easier way to think. Yeah, that's always the easier <laughs> way to think. Said. But then there are consequences to that as well. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard That'll to think in the gray. But when people that are in these sort of states, just to reiterate, aren't the best decision makers and aren't particularly savvy in developing, you know, some genius plan. This plan that they come up with in their head is probably not going to play out the way they thought it would. I'd also say. Or I would surmise, not speaking of this case, but using this 
current outcome, where we stand with it. A sociopath, someone that was truly pathological, that was in an incident like this, would be divested of the emotional investment and therefore would not have acted rashly, rationally, but then actually would have planned better. <laughs> I think you're right. Right? I think you're right. So what we're seeing here in this situation, if these allegations are true, is somebody who is acting like they've, oh, crap, I've painted myself into a corner. Now I'm really going to lash out. Sure. Or I'm cornered. That was a very bad mixed metaphor, excuse me. <laughs> but they're cornered and they're going to lash out defensively, right? Yeah. Okay, so the story that I wanted to tell that is gross and funny, but the secondary gain example that we talked about earlier is is really perfectly captured here is back when I was casting over at NBC, I was doing a number of Saturday morning shows that were for kids. They were produced by by Peter Engel, who was the creator of Saved by the Bell. And Saved by the Bell was hugely successful and it actually fulfilled a need for the educational programming that was required for Saturday morning television because there was a moral lesson in each episode. Because it took place in a school? or (laughs) Exactly. I know it's confusing. So the model was so successful, Peter basically wanted to repeat it, like cookie cutter repeat it. So it was going to be the same formula in a different setting. So it was going to be a high school in the Midwest where they're all basketball players. And it was going to be a mixed race blended family in Florida. And it was going to be the. I mean, so we were running five of these shows, seeing every teenager in town. And it was scads of bit parts. I mean, so many what we call under fives because it's under five lines and then supporting guest stars. So I was seeing hundreds of people a week and recasting people that, you know, I knew were capable of, of doing the roles. And I had a great boss at the time, Patricia Nolan. She gave me a lot of autonomy and it was a great deal. But one morning I was doing a producer session, which is the last session. I usually do a read to pick actors to make sure they're right. Then I gather like the top five, top six of various looks. And what we were doing was casting a police officer part for, I think it was more than five lines. It was a, several pages of a dialogue. It was, it was good. It was a good role. So I have a whole nice set of actors coming in, and I've read them before, some of them I know, and one of them comes in almost at the last minute, right before we start, and he is just flushed and sweating and completely agitated and thrown off to the point where I go, I'll call him Bob. Bob, are you okay? And in front of me and the other actors that were there for the session, he says, oh my gosh, I can't believe what just happened. I was six blocks away and I pulled around a corner on a green light. I made the this turn and the car that was in front of me veered into the parking lane where a woman was getting something out of her back car and he slammed into her and he severed her legs. 
Jesus. And suddenly all there's traffic and they like we couldn't move and that's why I was almost late and the ambulance was there and I felt like this poor woman and the guy in the car was freaking out. It was just awful. And he kept describing in such gory detail two of the other actors got physically sick. Like one of them turned green in front Super of me. Super detailed. Super detailed. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then ten minutes later, all the other four actors are completely shaken up. This guy cool as a cucumber, walks in the audition room and gets the job. Whoa. That is crazy It's totally crazy. And this was before instant news all the time online. But I looked the next day. There was no accident in that area of Burbank at all. It's kind of brilliant. It's brilliant and completely (laughs) wicked. Wow. But look, that's what the secondary gain was, is that he was willing to throw these other other actors under the bus and throw them off in order to walk in there and and have a you know a, a command. Yeah. Now what he did to me was that because he was the one that shown, yeah, he got the job. But what he also did was he made me look like I brought in four other bad actors for the role because they were so shaken up. So as a result, I uh, told his agents, like, no, he's not going to be coming back in right. anymore. We can't. Right. I, I can't. I don't have time to deal with that. And by the you know, just let him know this is the consequence of his actions. Sure. You got this one. but You got this one, again. but that's it. Wow. So pathology there, I don't know. It's just kind of like strategic genius in a way, right? Yeah. I think you could argue, argue it a couple of ways. Right. So, but we're going to move on to now we're looking at behaviors, non-pathological, but if there was something pathological, and we're going to talk about examples a little bit later on that are clearly beyond this, like calculated, but based on an underlying twist in someone's emotional makeup. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of do some psychobabble for a second to lay some foundation. So... We're going to talk about personality disorders. According to the DSM-5, personality disorder is going to be diagnosed if there are significant impairments in self and interpersonal functioning together with one or more pathological personality traits. So these have to be pretty pervasive. I mean, relatively stable across time, very consistent across situations for these individuals, but interpersonal functioning. So this is affecting their relationships. This is affecting how they deal with people. Right. So already you're going to see chronically all these people, things we're going to talk about have relational issues. Yes. And when I say across situations, I mean, there's problems at work. There's problems with family. There's problems at school. It's it's people in all different arenas. It's not just focused in on parents or something right. like that. That's what we pick up on when we start to lean towards this is that, oh, what's the common denominator? Who's the common denominator yeah. here, more yeah. likely? <laughs> hmm. I wonder, you know, right. all these things that have been happening to you, yes. what's the common factor? So, and and with these, the really there's like no medical diagnosis that can better, you know, explain some of these. It, it, just I wanted to talk about ruling out some other things, but generally it's what I told you. Majority of people with personality disorders don't come to the attention of clinical services, so they don't necessarily seek out therapy. It's when either they get in trouble with the law or 
usually some sort of self-harming behavior that, that they are then um, seen by a, a professional. So, so one of the things that you're saying then is that when we're talking about personality disorders, the majority of these really tend to be high functioning. Right. They may have problems in relationships. They may be eccentric and odd and exhibit in other ways, but they get by. Right. They can hold jobs. They can function. It's not like someone with a hardcore psychotic disorder that is so impaired by that disorder and that syndrome that they are not able to function in society. Right. Right. So it's it's a piece of their personality. <clears throat> Sorry. So, so that's your foundation. There are th- three what we call clusters. We're going to focus on cluster B. Cluster A, just for information, are going to be personality disorders where the person is exhibiting odd, bizarre, or eccentric type behavior. Cluster B, this is going to be the more dramatic, erratic type behavior. And cluster C are people who are feeling very anxious and fearful. So we are going to focus on cluster B. Uh, And and we'll have other episodes where we come back and focus on A and C because they don't really get their due and they're fascinating as well. Right. And within cluster B, antisocial personality disorders in that, we've talked about that a lot. A lot. (laughs) It's kind of our thing here, It's kind of our thing. Uh, Go ahead and listen to our episode on psychopathy and you'll get a, a, a good deal of antisocial personality disorder there. And that also doesn't necessarily feel like it fits well with what we're talking about today and the fake assaults and fake attacks and things like that. Although it can be confusing. It feels like it feels flavored or light. Could be. Could be. Traits of it. So the first one to start with is borderline personality disorder. So getting back to what you were asking about self, with borderline personality disorder – the person essentially lacks a sense of self. So how would you explain that? They don't know who they are. They don't, they've never developed a well, strong confidence. You know, in- my professor, the professor I had that I thought explained it exceptionally well was that it was an unstable sense of self because okay. there are times where the borderline feels incredibly empowered And in fact, those times of power can feel like a bipolar mania or hypomania. Like a high. A high. I'm master of the world. I know what I'm doing. Unfortunately, it's just very unstable, and it cracks and falls apart when something challenges it. And once again, we're talking about a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Some people have it very mildly. Some people have it very severely. And as an example, uh, in popular media, we've talked about the movie Fatal Attraction. Glenn Close, even though this is an over-the-top with a particularly violent ending, she really nails what we're going to talk about is that lack of sense of self. It's an emptiness. Right. Borderlines can become so quickly attached to another individual's identity or their identity of themselves at work, that when that is taken away or the threat of it is taken away, they decompensate and they lash out in sometimes very harmful ways. So when we're diagnosing that, some people get, I mean, some people in diagnosis want to get hung up on, oh, there has to be a suicide attempt. No, that's not the dominant feature. The dominant feature is that chronic severe, enduring 
lack of a sense of self, that emptiness. It's right. a void. It's right. a void. So they're, they're experiencing lots of emptiness and anticipating the next time that's going to happen, which we see fear of abandonment. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Fear of abandonment. Sure. Yeah. In any way. What do you mean? Abandonment interpersonally, abandonment by uh, their employment, anything that rocks that. So again, different settings, right? Right. Very very shaky foundation. So they have a pattern of intense but unstable relationships as well because of what you just described. Outbursts of anger, sometimes outbursts of violence, especially when they're criticized. That's just a nerve that doesn't like to be touched with them and impulsive behavior. Right. All of this is, is again, kind of coming back to the behavior. Suicidal threats and acts of self-harm are common, but like you said. They don't have to be the hallmark. It doesn't have to be right. the one behavioral hallmark. You should be looking a little bit harder yeah. to see what else is going on. I remember working with a client one time who was – in and out of a relationship with a borderline individual. And there was a great deal of intense love, but this guy was talking about his boyfriend who had been diagnosed with borderline, which is very interesting too, because male borderline presents differently from female borderline. Uh, And in fact, in some of the ways, like in the medical community, we don't look enough at how Heart attacks present differently in women. Right. In the psychological community, we do not look enough at how borderline traits emerge in males. But one of the things that my client said was, it's really hard to pull myself out of this relationship because when the spotlight is on me, I feel, I feel wonderful. When, when you've got a borderline that is showering you with adulation and praise and intimacy and all of that, it's amazing. And then when it flips on you, it's terrifying. Right. Right. And, and so what I tried to explain to him was what you're experiencing in that moment is you're experiencing projection. You're actually experiencing what the borderline feels internally, that flipping back and forth, mm-hmm. everything that you're getting is what they feel about themselves. They want to feel empowered and wonderful and validated, except it's never stable enough for long, and it flips. Right. right. It'll be some of the most wonderful times. Yeah. And, and crazy sex. Like that you'll, especially you're, <laughs> Seriously, you'll, you'll, you'll have these conversations as there was like, oh, my gosh, this is the most amazing sex ever. And like, right, it's crazy sex. Yeah. And that's great. But like, try, try sustaining that. Right. And where's the real emotional intimacy? Right, instead of faux intimacy, sure. right? Sure. Ooh, faux intimacy. Faux intimacy. Faux intimacy. So let's move on to histrionic personality disorder. Again, let's start with the sense of self. Um, here, there's a lack of self worth rather than just an overall no sense of self. So, what typically comes with lack of self worth? A lot of negative self-talk, a lot of thoughts, a lot of cognitive distortions about not being good enough, not being worthy, not being loved. And how is that going to go over well in relationships? Right. And what's the drive? Like, what's the drive? It's what we started with, attention. This, like, sense or need for validation and comfort and nurturance, but it's a well that can ever be filled. I love that. Yeah. It's, It's... 
it's very sad, in fact, because one of the things – it's a hallmark. And we talk about in borderlines there can be during the the high phases or the um, the energetic phases that there can be wanton sexuality or hypersexuality. That can also exist in histrionic as well because it's I need to do whatever I need to do in order to get this validation. The approval of others is everything. Right. They, Even they if base the, their well-being on that. Right. Even if it's from people that don't deserve your attention or don't deserve – like why would you want validation from this douchebag, right? Right. right. But at that point, judgment has gone out the window. Matter. It doesn't matter. Actually, the term – Histrionic comes from a Latin word that means pertaining to the actor. Histrionicus. Yes. So that's why we say this is this is. I always say it's the drama queen, whether it's a guy or a girl. But well, they're playing a part. Right. Right to get that attention. They're, so well, they're molding like a chameleon, and it, it goes into aspects of codependency, right. where. I and there's also more like we said in the borderline. There's the flavors of fear of abandonment. So I'm going to mold myself to what your needs are, but that's never going to be that's it's never going to be stable for a long term relationship. So if they're playing these parts to be heard, to be seen, to get attention, did and probably more reflectively now, but did you see a lot of this in entertainment? Yeah, I mean, I mean, is this a, a field that maybe they would go into, or is it too up and down and too? Well, I don't look. I don't want to make blanket stuff. statements because there right. are a lot of great, wonderful, stable but people. Anecdotally, anecdotally, what like did you see? I think that that there is certainly a drive for validation that can be filled by performing, and then if you happen to be good at it. Why wouldn't you continue that? Well, I mean, we'd say the same thing about an engineer. Sure. Like, oh, I'm good at this. I'm getting praise for doing it. I think I like it. I'm not sure, but I do like the adulation. Well, that's a normal human reaction. Exactly. Sure. But, but I think we're a little more judgy about people in entertainment for doing this when it's actually kind of the same thing in mm-hmm. other fields. It's just that then we move into sort of this really almost hippy-dippy idea in psych of – the mask persona, you know, well, who do I have to present to the world constantly? I have to keep up this this illusion of who I am, and then it has to shift in order for me to play this role. Well, then when you're in relationship, well, who are you in a relationship? Mm-hmm. Are you really being yourself? Mm-hmm. It's do you like, even know anymore? <laughs> right. I mean, I think, oh, what's that guy? Daniel Day-Lewis, I think, is an interesting – he's a brilliant actor. I don't really – I mean, he kind of bugs me, but he's a brilliant actor. And he lost his accent. Like, he's an Irish guy, and he had played so many different roles so intensely that he was no longer able to speak with his native accent and had to work with a language uh, expert. He had to relearn it. He had to relearn his little village accent. I think that's a great sort of metaphor for what happens in the performing world. Also, I wonder now if histrionicus is related to hysterical because hysterical is about – remember, hysteria, hysteria. was the wandering womb right. that they were, you know, kind of diagnosing in Victorian women. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I'll, we'll we look that look, up and get back to you, folks. Look it up. So individuals with histrionic disorder, personality disorder, tend to care a lot about what they look like. Uh, in women – well, and men too – Using their sexuality for attention is 
kind of an easy way to go about it. Mm-hmm. So may come off as an appropriately seductive, overly charming, you know, using some of those traits to get that attention, to get that excitement lit inside of them. But again, it can often be at their own risk as well. So there's that impulsivity that goes along with it of putting themselves in risky situations in order to get that need met of the attention. From others' views of them, what does this look like? People can usually see through it. It comes off as pretty superficial. How else would you describe it? Well, look, because look, we we talk about sincere. Remember when we were talking about in the in the uh, sociopathy and antisocial segment about that glib and superficial charm, or that glib glibness and charm? I think in the anti in the ASPD that's presenting that way, the charm can be a lot more convincing because there's not there's no drive to fulfill me, validate me, I'm using it as a tool to manipulate you, right? It's a tool that I'm using. Whereas with the histrionic individual, the veneer is a lot more thin and brittle. And like you said, maybe it's a lot easier for people to pick up on because they're going, wait, you're all over the place all the time and you're working in a prison, but you're wearing the tightest pants I've ever seen. That's completely inappropriate, right. which, by the way, folks, I've seen that, too. <laughs> yes, it happens. It is mind-blowing. Heels, like heels, tight pants. Heels, open-toed shoes. Ugh, just don't do it. How is that even allowed? I don't know. <laughs> just don't do it. Good luck running running down that, yeah. running from that inmate while you're wearing your candies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see how this would be impactful in all of their relationships. Right. And... And exhausting, by the way, exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. So it's like this vicious circle because they desperately want these relationships and this attention, and then they just don't know how to go about it in a sincere way. And so, it, yeah, it's 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 a sad personality disorder to kind of watch unfold. Yeah, I, I think, think, and you have so many people that are not disordered that work in the entertainment industry that are successful actors. And it would be so interesting if they had the freedom to talk about how challenging it is to work like that. I mean, I can't name names, but I remember one very famous comedian years ago that was paired with another female comedian on a number of projects. And once he got to a certain level, he was able to say, I cannot work with her anymore. It is exhausting. I have a family. I have a life. I can't, even though the work we do together is really great, I can't manage this. It's not worth it. And I remember feeling really badly for both of them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to take the last one, narcissistic personality disorder? Yeah. And we won't spend too much time on it because I think we've, well, we've got a couple of other episodes coming up where the narcissism is going to take the take the the forefront. But in narcissistic personality disorder, I mean, look at the word narcissus for the, those of you who don't know Greek and Roman mythology. Narcissus was uh, a beautiful, beautiful young man, like gifted by the gods with just beauty. And he was very vain, walking through the forest, and a wood nymph fell in love with him. And she was so in love with him that she withered away, pining, pining away because he would not return the love. And the gods got so pissed off at him that they 
cursed him to fall in love with his own reflection. So he looked in a stream, saw his reflection, and then he withered away, dying, because he couldn't bear to not look at his own reflection. So there is your Aww. classics literature. Tell and, me a story, And the nymph's Scott. name was Echo, because all <laughs> she could do was say the last few words of, that anyone else had repeated. So narciss, narcissism is people who are, you know, they still, like we say with a lot of these uh, pathologies and personality disorders, is they come from a really unstable sense of self. In a situation like this, an unstable sense of self would develop from – let me give an example. Okay, this is, this is usually the example that's taught in grad school. Let's, have, let's talk about a successful family, upper middle class. You've got mom and dad, both successful in their fields. They have three kids. Eldest kid, super successful and smart in math or whatever they do. Youngest kid is an artist and goes off and – Every, they're, they're great. They excel in all these areas. That middle kid is Marsha <laughs> and is average, right? And, and is not, not saying that they have low, <clears throat> excuse me, not saying that they have low intelligence, but they're just average. But you're surrounded by this superlative level. So what really needs to happen to keep something from developing is good parenting. But generally, what do parents want to do? They want to they want to encourage their kids to grow. They want them to get better. And even the best parents could be like, you're okay. It's okay. Like, we, we love what you are and who you are. Right. But if that kid learns to compare themselves very early on, this level of emptiness and shame metastasizes into a boomerang effect of over-self-aggrandizement all the time. And it develops over years and it can develop into things like what's a good example there was some kid i think it's one of the the crimes from about 25 years ago where a, a kid kills his parents like an affluenza kid right and he as a senior in high school had sought out someone to write an article about him being a teen entrepreneur and that he was a pilot and flew, had his own Learjet and had just created this whole fantasy mm-hmm. where his kid, his dad came forward and was like, um, you don't have any money. You don't have any of those things. You don't have a plane. It's my plane. Right. And, but this person was willing to live that, that fantasy. So, so it's an unstable self of sense of self that is wildly defended by it, armor. Right. Wildly but defended the, with this view. The extreme of it is I'm so important. Right. I am so confident, I am so in control to the point where this is where Linehan and a couple of other really high-level psychological theorists talk about that for the narcissist other people don't really exist. You, Shiloh, are not my best friend. You're just a narcissistic extension of my drives and my needs. And we're going to get along fine as long as you don't disagree with me. Right. And you think I'm great, too. But if you do start to disagree with me, then it's – I would have the same anger towards you or frustration. It's like, well, why is my hand not doing what my hand is supposed to do? Right. 
then interestingly enough, the narcissist and the borderline form can actually have very six, toxically successful relationships over a long period of time. Right. They're yin and yang. They complement exactly. each other. So well. when we look at the classic narcissist as a person who is envious of others, expects them to be the same as him, hence the narcissistic extension. They lack empathy. They easily lie. They have no problem exploiting others because I'm not exploiting anyone else. You're me. You're supposed to do this for me, right? And however, this is another one of those that from the outside is not necessarily able to get away with charm. Some of them are, but I generally tend to find people reporting full-blown narcissists is very annoying, very, very self-absorbed, hard to tolerate, tolerate clear, controlling, intolerant, selfish, insensitive. And if he or she feels obstructed, ridiculed, attacked, they fly into really fits of destructive rage, destructive anger, and will go like the borderline into planning revenge. And acting mm-hmm. out revenge. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, histrionics, we don't see that same flavor of acting out in revenge, but right. certainly in narcissists and borderline. So when I desperately want to know what's going on in this country and want to sit down and listen to the State of the Union address, but I physically can't sit there and listen for three minutes, I think, is when I tapped out. It's pretty is interesting, what, isn't is that, it? That kind of feels like what's coming through the television. I can't disagree. I just uh, – that's a whole other – we'd have to start a other podcast for that. I love the that. double negatives. I can't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so there are three out of the four cluster B personality disorders, fourth, of course, being antisocial personality disorder. So we are going to move into some – other cases. Right. So the thing, the allegations with Jesse right now, look, guys, this is not the first time this has happened. It's not the first time that it has happened of a person of any racial background, a person of any sexual orientation background. This runs the gamut. Right. And it has run the gamut. It's interesting that in many of the cases we're going to talk about is individuals using the idea that they have been marginalized in some way by what we call collectively as the other, right? Whoever is opposite of me or whoever I feel is the man or marginalizes me as an individual Mm -hmm. or a community, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So a a big one, I'm going to start off with one from... Yeah, this is a big one. I remember this. 1987. Yeah. In New York... So this is the story of Tawana Brawley. She's a 15-year-old African-American girl. She was found in a plastic trash bag, unconscious, smeared with feces, and she was missing for like four days. When emergency personnel found her, they they discovered slurs, KKK, all scrawled across her body. I I think part of it was in the feces as well, written that way. I remember it being on television. She looked really horrific. Yes, yes. And she conveyed that she'd been abducted and raped by a group of white men who had essentially taken her out to the woods and sort of delivered her to another group of men. And she was in freezing temperatures for days. And at some point... She said that one of them had a badge and a gun, and there was a county assistant district attorney who was fingered as one of the rapists. 
There was another police officer who, interestingly, a few days later, after she was discovered, died by suicide. Right. So they thought, oh, my gosh, he's totally in on this. He's Yeah. Uh, none of it was true. Uh, a rape kit showed no signs of sexual assault. She had no hypothermia, no abrasion, nothing that would have gone with what she was talking about being left in the woods in freezing temperatures. The feces were from her neighbor's dog. I don't know how they found that out. DNA testing in 1987. I did not know that. (laughs) I did not know that. I don't know what DNA testing was like in 1987, but I don't think it was that good. (laughs) The the slurs were actually written upside down as if she had written them on herself, like looking down. But it came out that... She was afraid of being beat by her mother's boyfriend for staying out and not coming home for a few days. That this is this kind of that, like I talked about alibi or to not. The secondary gain. Yeah, the secondary gain. To not face consequences of her own actions. So the primary gain of public attention was not. Oh no! The she main did not focus. Ex- she did the not secondary gain that. was the focus was that she just didn't want to be subject to punishment. Yeah. For not just in trouble. Rules. I mean, no one wants to be beat by. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, so she, right. I mean, she was that's abused. Awful, okay. But she didn't expect Al Sharpton to come knocking on her door either and be put in front of right. you know cameras and that sort of thing. So this this really shook the nation, and it, in 1987, you know, a lot of division across racial lines. It was, it was a big deal. I mean, you right. say you remember this from the news. So so can I also offer a counterpoint to that? Please. This is what's fascinating once you start going down that road is let's look at a case from February 27th, 2018 in North Texas, 18-year-old – no, excuse me, 19-year-old Brianna Harmon of Pottsboro had to plead guilty to four felony charges of tampering with physical evidence because she claimed that she was raped by three black men. Now, interesting. Just take an idea. Do do we know what Tawana what the what punishment Tawana got? Did oh, you, do we know what charges were brought up? I didn't. I didn't she, go there. And I, I don't know if she personally had to, but Al Sharpton and the organization that he sort of put together for her had to pay back like almost half a million dollars. Okay. Something something like that that had, I think, just got paid off recently from what I read. Okay. So here. Harmon told officers that when it all fell apart, and it fell apart very quickly for a lot of the same reasons that you did, like there was a a rape kit done that showed no sexual assault. So Harmon told the officers that she was upset after she and her fiancé had been fighting. And so she cut herself in her clothes, then made up the rape story because she didn't want her family to be angry with her. And what she ended up getting was, I believe, summary probation. Like, she got regular probation and deferred adjudication, and so that means – that can usually mean community service. Oh, yeah. That's so, the lightest of the light. I, you know, here's a case And what was the 30 charge? years later. Just filing a false police report? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's – you know, that can be anything from someone walking in and saying, I lost my cell – or somebody stole my cell phone when they really lost it. Right. So that – it feels like that – penal code section or that exact crime doesn't fit the magnification. And maybe it does. Yeah. I mean, from from a pure legal, this would be great to talk to Jessa and, right. um, and Ryan and Nick about, but like, 
you know, for us, I mean, my reaction to this is like, really? This is still happening? And once again, an example of the other. In Tawana's case, sure. it was, you know, right-wing white supremacist. In this case, it's, you know, mean black men right. that raped a poor little white girl. Right. And it, they were both lies. Because, and for that alibi, I have to have an alibi for getting into a fight with my boyfriend or I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to make people feel sorry for me, right? Well, and I think what anchors us about is this all that's happening is the consequences. I mean, look at the risk. What if, like we see all the time. What about a lynching? What if they had gone out and just, right. That is accused and is actually innocent. You know, there are some huge risks. She... I don't know. They, right. It, it and, can and, just and, go bad so many right. ways. Right, and dividing the community even further. Sure, like, how do you sure. come back from that? It's right. so divisive. It's just so divisive. Yeah. So I wanted to mention one here in Los Angeles that was in June of 2016. So this was right after the Pulse nightclub shooting in right. Orlando. This guy, I don't even want to say his name to not drive people there, but there's a YouTube personality, a young guy whose videos discussed LGBTQ issues. After the the shooting in Orlando, he was really broken up and doing some YouTube videos about it. And then 15 days later, he posts this disturbing photo to his Instagram showing him in a hospital bed with puffy eyes, a bandage on his head, and had a caption that said, last night was the worst night of my life, and I'm really struggling to find the words to talk about it, and went on to describe an attack on him outside of a gay club in California. The deputies out here start investigating, and they said, hang on, because we actually got a call to a club that night of an assault. The assault was unfounded. However, we see this guy, Mr. YouTube, vandalizing a car in the parking lot just by happenstance. You know, they see him. So they arrest him for that. Goes to jail, takes a booking photo. He looks fine. No injuries. They have it to show the world. And then they said that he was seen later on that night in his cell using the telephone to hit himself in the head. Wow. So this is even different. He's talking about, well, it's not different. I mean, he's still saying that somebody who disagrees with who he is Victor assaulted him but he's sort of writing on the coattails of this horrific big, tragedy terrible tragedy right and for whatever secondary game maybe more followers on YouTube well, I don't know right. I, I mean, don't even know and without one. I love that we're attention. not even going to mention his name attention yeah. you know if he's a YouTuber that means that's also financial gain look at the women there there are two cases with women, probably not only women, but two that I know of, after 9-11 that claimed that they were survivors. And because there were no records, these people got, you know, they conned the the system in order to get all this this money. Did they say they were survivors themselves or their husbands were firefighters or something? I think there was a lot of... I think there were many of them, actually. A lot of of claims, probably a lot of frauds that we probably didn't hear about. but But those in particular I remembered. So sort of taking these tragic situations and right. just and, trying to make money you know, look, of it. Smollett is in a position where he is a series regular on a very popular show, very well written, very well produced. 
you know, actors of that caliber that are not the leads but are series regulars on successful shows, our dramas, can usually at this time, two or three seasons in, they're making about 100000 an episode. So we're talking about somebody, an individual that, regardless of their background, has now moved into sure. the highest earning bracket sure. of entertainment. They're in that 1% of, of Hollywood entertainment. And it just doesn't – that's the part that starts to fall apart of, like, what did you want? So, like, if we're not going to go for pathology, was it motivated by greed? Right. You just wanted more money? Which is silly. <laughs> well, certainly the means. If it's if these allegations are true, that's for one thing. And I've been out of I've been out of the industry for twenty years. That's not how you get deals made. That's not a negotiation tactic. In fact, now your agent, your manager, your publicist, your pu- the, her, his publicist is probably like absolutely caffeinated and hasn't slept for three days well, right now sure. trying to figure it all out. Of course, of course. But the example I wanted to give for something like that, that in that situation, if it is true, seems like it is more about money. Right. But let's look at just a few years ago, like famous, you know, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, Olympic athlete Ryan Lochte oh. was in, was it with Brazil? Brazil. Okay, so he's in Brazil. Mm-hmm. There actually was an incident. This is not completely made up. Sure. And But he elaborated and lied so much about the event that it ended up looking badly for him. Are we going to hold him to the same standard if he's going to be pursuing Olympics in 2020? Right. It's just it's just odd how these things is like we want to focus. I'm I'm not justifying these allegations that Smollett. I would love to know more about what's going on. Right. I don't know about what his reputation is on set. I haven't heard that gossip. Right. Right. But like we have to get to the point where we stop looking at individuals differently and mm-hmm. we just sort of step back, wait till all the information comes mm-hmm. in before we we take action. And I'm saying that as myself as a as someone who posts on social media, as someone who is a tiny voice in a large sea of voices, but we have to realize that that we have a, there are consequences to what we do as well as observers of this phenomenon. Right, and this is the perfect case to highlight that because it did totally flip on us. Absolutely, and people feel betrayed. Yeah, that's 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 what people are feeling. They they don't understand it and they feel betrayed. Because when you have a victim stating that this is directly related to them being a part of a marginalized community, people are going to rally around them right. with love and support. And, oh. Man. Can I also just say this? This is like, I mean, I know it's, I'm like about to go on my rant again, but I said it before we started recording. There's something else going on right now in the news that to me is so much bigger than this, and that's that a member of the U.S. military, a Coast Guard service individual member, was planning and had put into pre-action mode terrorist activity against politicians. Right. He had a huge hit list. Huge huge hit list, huge cache of weapons, Weapons, huge cache of ammunition, almost almost to the extent that the Las Vegas shooter did. Right. And why aren't we talking about that? Right. I mean, for one thing, we should all be freaking relieved that that it was caught. Oh. And that it was investigated and caught and and prevented. All the terrorist attacks that are prevented and and caught just with great 
investigation work. I'm glad I don't know about all of them. Right. And, and I, I, I know a, about some of them, yeah, but I, I don't know about And all I have of them. A, a nephew that was in Secret Service, and he was always incredibly professional. And, you know, you know I'll tell dinner, tell, dinner, t- uh, dinner time stories, you know, and not reveal information. But my nephew was always, like, very mm-hmm. wonderfully professional. And the only thing I remember him saying was if, they, if people only knew what we take care of that never yep. comes out. Yeah. When I got my training as a terrorism liaison officer, it was well, talk about ignorance is bliss. And well, we got to I we got to we got to do an episode on that. I want to hear more or though I'll not, then I won't ever be able to sleep. I don't know about that. I'll have to watch Annabelle like four times to <laughs> cleanse my palate. Nice of the realities of the world. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go into yeah. the, the horror fantasy I can deal with. No kidding. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, did you want to do any more examples? Um, there thought. was a couple. I, I wanted to There's say so this. Many like, you can find them. You know, Trevor Noah said um, something really amazing. I thought what he had said, and I think I may have to paraphrase because I don't um, have it. I'm not going to – I don't have the quote right in front of me. But Trevor Noah said a wonderful thing where he said, you know, there, the, if one thing good comes out of this – is that we can agree that this is just asshole behavior. Right. goes back to your shithead analogy. Right. It's a shithead analogy. Right. I mean, I hope that Jesse – I don't want ill of him. I don't know. I, I don't want ill of anybody. I want everybody to, to empower and grow and evolve emotionally and be happy. I, I don't we'll, – maybe it will unfold and we'll have better understanding of, of how sure. these allegations, if true, sure. happen. But, you know – one of the things about marginalized populations having to come to terms with, and certainly I've had my struggle in this as well, is that I made a very naive assumption when I was a young, um, partially closeted man, you know, still living in the South and moved to Chicago. And one of the challenges for me was this has been hard for me, holding this secret, managing an identity being a chameleon in different situations and surviving that way. So everybody that I know that's part of my tribe, the LGBTQ tribe, they're going to be like me. They're going to understand. And what I didn't understand because I was young and dumb is that there are plenty of gay assholes, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I dated a lot of them (laughs) until I found like the best one. I found the best one, I think. But I dated a lot of them. And then you real that was a really that was a jarring reality of me, like, oh, my marginalization is not an intersection that makes all of us special and holds us to this high, you know, ethical or moral baseline. That's an individual choice and journey that each one of us has. That has no reflection on the rest of the community. Absolutely. And it shouldn't. And yet no. When someone I like know. the pulse, this guy from the YouTubers, like you're you're jumping on the back of this tragedy, right? Which, by the way, that assailant just googled the closest club. He had no idea it was a gay club. It was it, oh, not targeted for that reason, right? That talk about having to really relook at how all of that went down. Uh-huh, the uh-huh. the incorrect information that came out was yeah, was very conflicting. But look, if we're going to do you know, if we want to understand or, or further illustrate examples of how this has happened across racial lines, 
we can talk about 1931. Nine black teenagers were accused of raping two white women in Paint Rock, Alabama. That didn't go well. That was really bad. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, completely false. Completely false. Uh, in 1989 in Boston, Charles Stewart alleged that his wife, Carol Diamati, and his unborn child were shot and killed by a black man. Stewart told authorities that when he and his wife were coming home from a birthing class, that they lost their way and ended up in a dangerous part of town, quote unquote, near a black housing project. And then while they were looking for a way out, they were attacked. You know, it was. Uh, and then you was, have Susan Smith. It was all a lie. Oh, and he committed suicide. Oh. Susan Smith, who killed her children. What was right. it for secondary gain? Because the guy that she was fixated Dating. on yeah. didn't want children. Right. And then blaming it on Couple a person of, of color. I mean, sure. the Central Park Five, uh-huh. which is also related to the narcissist you were talking about uh-huh. who jumped on that. Right. And this in, harshly impacted these men's lives. Harshly impacted them, their yeah, lives. Yeah, there's a lot of tragic, tragic cases. Yeah. Uh, Amanda Knox. Oh, gosh. Amanda Knox. So fascinating. You know, that's a fascinating one. I think, actually, we probably need to I do know. more about that. We'll put on the list. Right. But so we've covered a lot. Yeah. I hope that one of the things – this is me as – you know, a pundit of sorts or, you know, like I said, a tiny voice in a sea of large voices. And I say it to myself as well as to our listeners, you know, we all need to take a step back in any situation. This is a huge learning moment for everyone if we choose to accept it, that harsh judgments, quick reactions rather than thoughtful response can have unintended and irreversible consequences. So do you want to take us out with your wicked quote? Yeah. So, of (laughs) course, I had to have a gay quote when I was talking to FMQ, is that, look, as a society, I think that there's a a drive for us as a human tribe to move towards forgiveness, and for better or worse. I think generally it's for better, is that we understand good people – do really shitty things sometimes. And actually, and bad people do good things sometimes, right? right? There's, right. It's, it's all there. But in our world, we want to feel good story, and we want to see people do well, regardless of the Yahoo comment section. And don't ever go into the <laughs> Yahoo comment section, or you'll just want to wash your brain with bleach. It's yeah. so awful. But there's a moment in the musical Wicked where Elphaba, who has become an eco-terrorist, I'm such a geek. I'm such a gay geek. <laughs> but Elphaba has become an eco-terrorist, and she is just not dealing with the man anymore. And the man is the wizard, and he has been manipulative and awful. And he has portrayed her as an evil person. She's not wicked. Wickedness was thrust upon her by her society. And she's saying, oh, great. Well, you did this to me. How are we going to come back from it? And his quote is, the most celebrated or the rehabilitated. Mm -hmm. And we think about that. Like, when there's a sex scandal, where do they go? They go into rehab. Right. Like, that's the place you go, right? What a waste of a clinician's time. Exactly. For those particular cases. (laughs) You're not an addict. It's just a scandal. But I do think, once again, let's step back and let's, let's look at all the facts before we have them. Let's take into account people's humanity. And let's not make it something that divides us but actually can bring us together. It's a lot of work. It's not easy. Nope. But I think it'd be good. So 
we may um, be coming back to talk a little bit more about this with uh, a colleague of mine who is a psychoanalyst, and he could get into some really hardcore foundational theory of drives of why people do things when they're in a situation like this. And we may do a, like a little mini episode next week to add on. That'd but we want to get this up for you guys. Yeah, we, we're bringing this to you as soon as we can so it can be timely. Absolutely. Thanks so much for tuning in and downloading. Please look for us on social media. Please give us really good stars in the iTunes store. Um, we're hope, we, we hope that we're going to be seeing you at the True Crime Podcast this summer in Chicago. Yes, the it's festival. Very exciting. Uh, we are scheduling. We're, we're creating with uh, Getting Off Podcast, a live broadcast on Sunday night from the, the diviest bar we can find that will <laughs> let us put up a microphone. Should be fun. Yeah, Come have drinks with us. us. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, folks. It was great uh, having you and giving us a chance to talk. And we'll see you next time on L.A. Not so confidential. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.